Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Church Online this morning. We um, are continuing, finalizing, in fact, finishing our series on the Minor Prophets. And today we conclude with Malachi, or as some people like to say, Malachi, the Italian prophet. I'm going to get you to bow with me and we're going to pray and then we'll work our way through this short but great book. Let's pray. Thanks, Heavenly Father, for the opportunity we have, again, to read your word, to learn from it, and to learn about you and your heart's desire for us as we seek to uh, love you and follow Jesus. So, Lord, speak to us, enlighten us, we pray, again, in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Malachi is uh, a very short book, uh, something like about 55 verses, and here is the summary that I've written, and if we get time, I'll come back to this at the end. God basically says to the people of Israel, His people, uh, I have loved you all of your life, but you have not loved me or obeyed me. You do your own thing. You, um, even when I point out that you're doing wrong things, you don't accept that and you argue, argue back and you deny it. Um, but I do note that some of you uh, are inclined towards me and I take special note of that and record it. Um, I will make a distinction in the future between those who are righteous and serve me and those who are not righteous and who don't serve me. Um, I will make that distinction. So you'll have one last chance. What you should do, uh, remember Moses and his law that I gave you and to obey it and to look for Elijah because he's coming and so he will lead you to return to me. That's the book of Malachi in a summary. It's a fascinating little book. It has certain unique things uh, in it that the other minor prophets don't have. For instance, in Malachi, there are a higher percentage of divine words, uh, something like about 85%. 47 of the 55 verses has God speaking, God's direct words. He, um, we call his name Malachi, but it's argued it, Malachi is also a title. So is this a personal name? Because if it is, it appears nowhere else in the Old Testament. Um, and we don't know anybody else called Malachi. But Malachi, the word, means my messenger. In the Greek translation, in fact, of the Old Testament, it's called angelos, the angel, the messenger. And so it could simply be a title, um, in, in which case then it's pretty anonymous. And that could be deliberate, that it's not about the person, it's about the message. Um, but we take it, I take it to be Malachi as a, uh, an actual prophet, an actual person uh, who had that name, uh, and who is just an unknown. He's a nobody, if you like, but used significantly by God, and God loves to do that sort of thing. The book of Malachi is also unique in that it's a dialogue between God and the people, and God will raise certain complaints or issues of things they're doing wrong, and they'll, they'll fire back, they'll disagree, they'll argue, they'll say, prove it. Um, and that happens at least seven times, and there are about five other times in the book where the people... Uh, saying harsh things and terrible things about God and he hears it and he has recorded it. So about a dozen times there's this toing and froing, this dialogue going on. Uh, 
The book of Malachi is written in prose, not poetry. Most of the minor prophets uh, are written in poetry. That's significant in some ways, and if nothing else, it probably means God is just simply giving them the facts and not giving them too much of the feeling, which would be expressed more in the poetry. And finally, to note the unique thing about Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, and the last word in that book is the word curse. The curse is still there, and it's conditional. If the people respond, then they'll be blessed, but if they don't, then the curse will come upon them, God's judgment. The story is about the people of Israel uh, back in the land. They've been back about 150 years, something like that. The ministries of Haggai, Zechariah are now in the past, and even Nehemiah has come and gone. And Malachi probably follows Nehemiah by several decades. Uh, we don't know for sure, that's the best guess, but given the tone of what was going on in the temple and the degradation society, that would have needed time for that to kick in. So it's about 150 years, we guess, um, since they've been back in the land. The temple is operating, but the people are drifting spiritually. Uh, their spiritual flame is waning. Uh, they're starting to go off track. And so the Lord begins with this wonderful assertion. Here is the God of the Old Testament, who is often claimed to be cruel and judgmental. Here is the God of the Old Testament saying to his people in chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. God declares his love to his people. And their reply is, to, how have you loved us? They want to argue back. And then God answers that, gives them an evidence. Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord said? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I've turned his mountain into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Jacob, your ancestor, way back in the beginning, Jacob who became Israel, I chose him. I chose you. But Esau, Scripture says, hated. It doesn't mean hostility and resentment against the people who descended from Esau, but rather it's a comparison. I have chosen you and I haven't chosen them. God blessed them and provided for them as well, but I have chosen you and I've treated you in a special way that I haven't treated them in. Um, though I've disciplined you in your history and you've been taken out of the land, I've always brought you back. I have always restored you because of my covenant commitment to you. But the people of Edom and Esau, I haven't done that. When they are gone, they'll be gone for good. And that's certainly true today. Uh, you would have met a Jewish person, a, an Israeli. Have you ever met an Edomite, a descendant of Esau? The last Edomite was the great-grandson of Herod, the Herod who persecuted the babies in Bethlehem in the time of when Jesus was born. His great-grandson uh, was not married and died childless, and he was the last Edomite. All of the Edomites have gone, just as God had predicted and had uh, declared through certainly some of the other prophets and what he is referring to here. So Israel, I have loved you, um, but you haven't loved me in return. This is a very basic truth and that even people today don't 
get it or they misunderstand it. God loves us. God loves people. God's not pleased with our sin. We'll talk about that. But God loves us. He is for us. That's why He sent Jesus. And if you look back over your life, you can see evidence of the indication of God's care and His provision and His direction. And of course, the ultimate demonstration of God's love is, is Jesus and the cross. God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us when we were estranged from Him. That's Satan's oldest trick, to convince people that God doesn't love them. He did it with Eve and He does it still today. He whispers in people's ears and says, these terrible things that are happening to you and these difficulties you are facing, God mustn't love you. It's a lie. God does love you. That's what he declares here in the beginning of Malachi. That's what's declared by Jesus all the way through the New Testament. And the book of Jude uh, even concludes, keep yourselves in the love of God. Maintain that mental attitude, that focus that I am loved. God loves me. With whatever else is going on in my life, he cares for me. Well, the Lord goes on and the second complaint is, and for the next chapter and a bit, it's going to be directed at the priests, the spiritual leaders. They had a responsibility and they were messing up badly. Chapter 1 verse 6 says, <clears throat> the Lord says, If a son honours his father and a servant honours his master, if I am a father, where is the honour that's due to me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord? It's you priests who show contempt for my name. How have we shown contempt for your name? See, they don't accept it. They're not humbled by it. God says, you've placed defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you? When have we done that? Where's the proof? God gives them the proof. He follows and says, you're offering sick and blind, crippled animals. You're offering inferior offerings. And I'm not happy about it. I don't receive that. I'm not pleased with it. In fact, in verse 10, God says, I wish one of you had the courage to actually close the doors of the temple so that this couldn't go on, that they wouldn't light the fires of the altar, that all of this meaningless ritual would stop. Uh, God was not pleased by it. He was offended by it. He was hurt by it because they weren't giving God their best. They were giving God the leftovers. They were giving God second best. They were doing what was just easy and convenient for them. That same attitude can persist today in the church too, where we give God our second best, we give God the leftovers. It's probably classically illustrated by people who mean well, but when they're finished with using something, whether it's a lounge or an item, they say, rather than giving it away to charity or somebody, let's give it to the church. Let's give God, we've used it, we don't need any more. Let's give that to the church. Whereas our attitude ought to be, let's give God our best. And that was the attitude that Malachi was certainly confronting. As God has given us his best in his son, so let's reciprocate. Um, the Lord goes on to talk about the worship that he is seeking. And um, he's taken note of people who say, I'm going to offer the best animal that I've got. And yet when it comes time to doing it, they don't. They renege and they take a, a diseased animal or an inferior animal and they offer that instead and God curses that person in verse 14 and he's going to remove them. He's, the Lord's had enough of this 
formal, ritualistic, empty worship. The Father seeks true worship. One person has said that we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. We worship our work, that's our focus. We work hard at our play. When it comes to worship, we play. We play at our worship. We're indifferent to it. This is the attitude that God is confronting in His people in the book of Malachi. In chapter 2, continuing still to, with the priests, uh, the Lord gives them a challenge and a warning. He admonishes them, if you don't listen to me and put it in your heart that you're going to honour me from this point forward, then I will send a curse upon you. In fact, I will curse your blessings. And God says, in fact, I've already done it. I've been doing it. But you could stop it. You could stop me cursing you by simply you honouring and obeying me. You showing that you're committed to me. And in fact, the Lord says in verse 3, because of you, the priests, I will rebuke your descendants. Our sin will influence the next generation. That's certainly a biblical principle. And you can see it being worked out in your own lives. Um, and verse 3 goes on, note this, um, that God threatens that if they don't honour Him, then God is going to remove them. He's going to remove the sacrificial system. He's going to shut down the priesthood, which is what He does in about several hundred years from here, 70 AD. The temple was invaded and destroyed by the Romans and there has never been a sacrifice since. It'll be restored in another temple that'll be rebuilt in the millennium where sacrifices will be pure sacrifices from all nations. But God threatened them here and God has actually carried that threat out. The Lord goes on to talk about the Levites and the covenant he had with the priests, the descendants of Levi, and how they had a, a responsibility to lead the people, to teach the people, to listen to God, to teach for God, to live for God and really to walk with God day by day. We have that same calling on our life because well, we are priests, a royal priesthood to Him. Ministry is a privilege and these priests didn't seem to understand that. Um, and because they didn't realise the privilege, privilege, they were just doing it for the money, they were doing it for the reputation or whatever their reasons or motivation. They were taking shortcuts and so God was going to remove them. In fact, God says he exposes their hypocrisy and exposes it to the people. And the people, um, like we respond, we don't like hypocrisy either. And we turn, we, are, uh, we hold those people in contempt. Um, so that's what God does for the people of Israel. He turns the hearts of the people against the priests. Um, and then from verse 10 of chapter 2, the focus broadens from just being on the priests to being on the priests and now the people. And the priests and the people have been unfaithful to their covenants and he gives two illustrations. One is to do with marriage. The people of Judah had been marrying foreign women with their foreign gods, this mixed and interracial marriages that was spiritually disastrous. 
Um, they could probably try and justify it by saying there were more men who returned from Babylon than women and there weren't enough women for them to marry and, and, and Solomon did it, so why can't we? And so that was going on and God calls them on it. And the other thing they were doing is that they were divorcing their wives. When they got married, when they were committed to marriage as a young person, betrothed, and then when they got older, it was time to trade in the wife for a newer, younger version, and so they simply divorced them. And Micah, Malachi goes on to talk about how the priests then continue their role as a priest and they bring their offerings to the altar and God doesn't accept it. And they start weeping and wailing as, and they're disappointed. Why isn't God accepting our offering? And it's because, God says, you have been unfaithful to the wife of the covenant. Because you divorced her for a younger version, I hold you responsible. The New Testament says exactly the same thing. 1 Peter 3, 7 instructs Christian men, husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives, being aware that they are heirs also of grace and treat them with respect. And then Peter says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. The way we treat our marriage partner affects our relationship, our fellowship with God and that it can hinder us spiritually by us not behaving appropriately in our marriages. And Malachi writes about that. In fact, he uses very strong language to say that God hates divorce and he does. He doesn't hate divorced people. He hates divorce. Divorce is always because of sin. Whether it's sin on both behalf or sin on one side, it's always because of sin. And therefore, it's forgivable. And because it is forgivable, it's also fixable. And God loves divorced people. Don't make the mistake of misreading this scripture to say that because God hates divorce, therefore God hates divorced people. He hates divorce, he hates the pain, he hates the hurt, he hates the damage that divorce does to relationships and to families. And if you look carefully, you'll see in verse 15, the reason God wants marriages to be committed and united is because he's looking for godly offspring. Marriages are to provide a safe, secure environment for the training of the next generation. And divorce adds to the complexity of that as we see working out in our world. God loves us. God loves divorced people. But he doesn't like the process and he wants us to avoid it. Chapter 2, verse 17, God exposes them for their complaints and the things they've been saying. You have wearied me with your words. How have we wearied you with our words? What have we said? And God, God records it. You say things like, people who do bad things, God doesn't do anything about it. And people who do good things, God doesn't reward them. And why bother? Where is the God of justice? They're complaining against God. And that occurs several times throughout the book. Well, God's reply here is in the very next verse. Where is the God of justice? Chapter 3, verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then um, <clears throat> suddenly the Lord himself, the one you are seeking, will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire. He will come. There are two messengers. 
And this messenger, obviously, and we know from later revelation and history that this messenger is going to be John the Baptist, that he will come and prepare the way for the Lord Jesus, who was the messenger of the covenant who was to come. And we don't have time, but you could follow that through, that in one sense, John the Baptist was Elijah. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. But Jesus also indicates that Elijah is still to come before his return. Elijah will come and Malachi will return to that truth in a moment. When the Lord comes to his temple, there's going to be a refining process and there's going to be judgment coming. Um, and so God says in verse 6, return to me, get your life realigned with me. I, the Lord, don't change. I'm committed to the covenant. I haven't broken the covenant. So take the opportunity and repent, return to me. How should we return to you? Uh, how have we been robbing you? And God says in tithes and offerings. Um, and God, in fact, invites them to, to do something that we can't do, that we're not instructed to do, that, and that is test him in this. God is giving them an offer of saying, obey me, do exactly what I ask and command you to do, and I will bless and honour you. It's an amazing invitation. Test me in this, says the Lord, and he'll pour out a blessing. He'll open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that they won't be able to contain and that even other people will notice. Um, and people will call them a, a blessed people. The truth for us is we can't outgive God. He is a God who's very generous to us, who provides everything for us. Just like the Lord Jesus says, Luke chapter 6, verse 38, he says, give and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, it'll be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you again. And under the new covenant, the Apostle Paul certainly instructs us that those who sow sparingly will also reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, generously, then you'll reap in kind. Each of us should give exactly what we've decided in our heart to give. It's between us and God. And not to give reluctantly or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. So if you think that, oh, I could take this money and I could use this to buy a new iPhone or a new gadget, then God says, well, keep it. Do that. Buy your iPhone, buy your gadget. But you'll miss out on the reward and the blessing that he promises to give. Not just now, but also in the future. So it's a double whammy of missing out. And if we do give reluctantly to the Lord, then I, I think God may say, I'm not sure I really want it. Because God is so committed to wanting to bless us and for us to enjoy our relationship with one another that he doesn't want us to be reluctantly participating in it. Chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, the Malachi then talks about some of the very harsh words, the terrible things they were saying about God, and they are horrible. Verse 13 says, you've said harsh things against me. What have we said? They respond with, you have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about uh, like mourners before the Lord Almighty? Now they call the arrogant blessed and they call the, uh, the evildoers prosper. Um, and even those who challenge God escape. May God strike me dead if this is not true and nothing happens. And the people of Israel, particularly the priests, were saying these terrible, terrible things about God. Contrasting to that, 
or another group of people in this magnificent paragraph in Malachi chapter 3 verses 16 to 18 316 famous numbers in 316 it says then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name terrific verse those who feared God loved him respected him spoke with each other fellowship together and the Lord listened and heard heaven is full of um, the praises of God the angels singing and I can imagine the Lord in the midst of all of this praise going on in heaven saying to the angelic choir hang on shh they're talking about me and the Lord is listening to what we say to one another about him. What has God done in my life recently? What has God shown me in his word recently? And the Lord takes note. And he actually calls for a, write that down. A book of remembrance is written for him. Just like the Persian kings used to record down their acts and their exploits. And it would be read back to them for their own self-glorification. This is an indication more of God keeping a record of the people who love him whom he will bless and honour. A book of remembrance. When was the last time you got together with another believer and shared what God has been doing in your life? Our testimonies certainly lift us up, but it also, from this passage, it also blesses God. He loves to be the centre of our focus. He really does care about us and our relationship with him. And the Lord goes on to say that in Chapter 4, the final chapter in the book and the final chapter in the Old Testament. Surely the day is coming and it'll be a day like a burning furnace. And all the evildoers and people who reject God are going to be like dry stubble, dry grass. And they'll just simply be consumed. When the Lord Jesus returns, he will remove the evildoers. And God will make a distinction. As it says in the end of uh, chapter 3, that God will take us as his treasured possession and that we will again, God will again make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who don't. The Lord Jesus will do that when he comes. Um, and so, final word to the children of Israel through the prophet Malachi is, well, what can you do? Well, the prophet says two things. Firstly, remember Moses, verse 4. Remember the law, my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws that I gave him uh, at Mount Horeb for you, for Israel. The law is for Israel. It's not for us, the Gentiles. Um, grace and truth and the new covenant is for us. Remember Moses and his word and obey him, God says. And secondly, look for Elijah, verse 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Remember Moses, look for Elijah, he will come. And listen to him, obey what he teaches, otherwise I will come and judge, I'll strike the land with a curse. And the Old Testament ends with the word curse. For the next 400 years, when they read their Old Testament in their synagogues, the final word to be sounded would be curse. 
The curse that started in Genesis chapter 3 with the coming of sin into the world is still there. It's still operating. And it's not until we get to the end of the New Testament that the final word is grace. In fact, Revelation 22 verse 3 says that, and there'll be no more curse. Now, what's the difference between Malachi chapter 4 and Revelation 22? The Lord Jesus. He is the one who comes. He is the one who takes away the curse of sin, the curse of God's judgment upon us and who sets us free. And in fact, the Jewish people in their synagogues, when they read Malachi, they don't conclude with the final verse. They don't finish with the word curse. They read down to there and then they go back and they reread verse 4. Remember Moses and the law that he gave to us. So the book of Malachi, short, punchy, correcting, reminds us that the Lord is coming. Coming to return to take those who love him and belong to him, to himself. But not everybody wants to receive him. Well, he's still coming. But today he extends healing. He extends the offer of forgiveness. Regardless of our past or our sins or our failures, it's all forgivable. And if you accept him, if you come to him, ask him to forgive you, then you'll find that he is a God who not just forgives, but a God who restores. He's a God who loves you. So let me conclude by saying these few things about Malachi. About five lessons that we learn from him. Number one, never forget or doubt God's love. Doesn't matter what difficult circumstances you're going through or the troubles <clears throat> or whether you're doing it tough. God loves you, cares about you, is aware of what's going on and invites you to trust him in the midst of all of what's happening. Number two, we need to understand that God does withhold blessing from people who are living in unrepentant sin. Um, there is a cause and effect between God's blessing in our life and God withholding that blessing. One leads to the other. If we turn to God in repentance and trust and hope, He takes us and accepts us and blesses us. If we don't, if we continue to sin defiantly, then He withholds blessing to try and bring correction into our life. Spiritual apathy in our life certainly needs to be confronted and to be fixed by renewing our commitment to Him. Number four, when people start to think, why bother with God, like the people, the priests in Malachi's day, why bother with God is a very short step then to why bother being godly. And then the next generation will be, why bother being godly, and then a short step to why bother being good. It's a downward slope. So we need to focus on being God-centered, focused upon Him, loving him and serving him. And the best way to do that is like in Malachi 3.16, to talk to one another about the Lord and the good things that he's doing in your life and to commit yourself to him, to offer him your best. And the best way to start, not just our tithes and our time and our talents, <clears throat> using our tongues for him, but our whole bodies, offering that up to him to, as a living sacrifice. And begin with your whole life. Surrender that to him and say, Lord, here I am, take me, use me. And then just one day at a time, go on from there, loving him, serving him, and the Lord will take note. May God bless you. May God 
speak to you through the book of Malachi. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to thank you that you are a God who speaks to us, a God who challenges us, a God who cares about us. You've communicated your love to us, not just through Malachi, but especially through the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the gift of salvation and forgiveness, the gift of your spirit. Lord, here we are. We surrender to you. Forgive us for the times that we have been defiant and disobedient. Help us, Lord, not to be indifferent, but to be focused and committed, serving you with our best. So take, Lord, all of us and use us to your honour and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless everybody.